a Highline podcast. Hello, welcome to the Whiskey Bench. I'm Stephen Torna. I'm Kat Dwyer. Kat, what's cooking on this Friday? <laughs> I'm glad it's Friday, I'll tell you that much. It's been a week. Good week, but a week. Yeah, same. It's been a good week with like some fun in there. Oh. Got some breakfast with some of the coworkers and friends. Nice. Had people over for dinner. Kept very busy, so like... On the scale of the amount of hours that I actually worked, it was like lower than some weeks, but it felt really long. (laughs) Like there were a couple days where I only worked like six hours and it felt like an eternity. Yeah. That's, you know. And other days it's like you work 12 hours and it's like, boom, 12 hours (laughs) and it's great. So, you know, maybe more a uh, symptom of the tasks. Right. Than the, you know. Your the mood I was in the week. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but we're recording a little bit earlier on a Friday, which is great. I, I came home at a great hour. I actually took a shower. Bathing's Guys, good. I am almost always <laughs> unbathed when we record Whiskey Bench <laughs> because I usually come in from work, like kind of fly in like 15 minutes before we record. <laughs> throw the cocktail stuff together and then we kind of like dive into it like i took a shower like he's usually filthy yeah i really am i'm like (laughs) i got sawdust like in my eyebrows no i even put some cologne on nice i'm not doing anything after this i'm just gonna sit at home yeah but it was like hey you know what when you have an excuse to just like yeah be clean put on some decent clothes it's a good feeling lie to myself fake yeah. Success. Put on some wool trousers and we're we're in it. It's a good outfit. Yeah, yeah. This is my old man outfit. That was my week in a nutshell. What yes. Was, what was your week? You said it was busy, but it was. I mean, no busier than usual, really. The op-ed I've been mentioning mm, yes. on <laughs> inflation is done being edited and is hopefully going to be published within the next week or so. It has taken so long that I've had to update multiple metrics that I cited in it because (laughs) we've gotten new numbers for those things. Uh, So anyways, hopefully it's going to be done and published soon. It's out of my hands at this point. But in the course of this whole kind of long editing process, I wound up getting invited by the institute that's publishing it to join them for a uh like a colloquium over the in the spring in massachusetts which i don't really want to go to massachusetts but it sounds very interesting that'd be rad though all on monetary policy like the first week of may i think first or second Mm. week of may yeah there's a whole there's like a couple days i haven't looked at the application yet but but i was flattered that they were like I think it was, well, I don't know. It was, it was nice. They were like, we like your writing. Oh, thank come, you. Come do this <laughs> class, like this colloquium and like learn more about monetary policy. And I was like, okay, cool. All Maybe right. I'll make the editing yeah. process easier in the future. <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, hopefully that'll get published in the next week or so and we can share it on our social right media. Right on. That'd be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so that was a highlight of my week. 
Good. Or just this is the noteworthy part, I guess. Yeah. And then, <laughs> now, and then after this, you're going to go watch the new Jackass. I'm going to go watch Jackass. From monetary policy to to Jackass. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What is that guy's name? It's Steve, right? The one dude. Uh, Yeah. Uh, Steve O. Steve O. Right, right. <laughs> My bad. <laughs> I have to say, and if your mother listens to this episode, she'll probably not like this so i apologize in advance if you're <laughs> she listening to this, every i think you're so lovely so i don't mean to offend <laughs> you but uh there's this hilarious meme i haven't watched jackass in a long time but there's this hilarious meme of, G- of jesus getting nailed to the cross and it says my name is jesus christ and this is jackass <laughs> and it's oh right right because they always open and yeah, it's like with, some yeah. horrifying thing they're doing to themselves oh, yeah, anyways oh, yeah. it's terrible but funny. Hey, you know what? Memes, <laughs> memes will uh, will be memes. Yes, they will. What are we drinking tonight, yeah, Tona? Did you get a chance to sip on it yet? First sip. Oh, okay. There's a lot there. There is a lot there. It's a lot up front. A lot in a good way. Yeah. I don't even know how to describe the flavors, though, but it like hits you. Yeah. And then it has like a smooth, almost kind of caramely is not the right word, but kind of like sweet, smooth finish. Yes. Okay. Well, I know where the smooth, sweet, smooth finish comes from, <laughs> um, but we are drinking tonight a drink called the Tea Site. That's T S I T E, which stands for They Shall Inherit the Earth. Mm. And it is three quarters an ounce of brandy. I used a very nice cognac, mm. which mm, I love cognac. So if you're going to go brandy, go cognac. Uh, three quarters an ounce of lemon juice, a half an ounce of control. To be fair, I didn't have that. So I used a different orange liqueur, but we'll skip over that. Uh, <laughs> and then half an ounce of Benedictine. And that's the honey and herbal liqueur. Okay. And I bet that nice, smooth finish is the honey. I was going to, yeah, honey is maybe, mm-hmm. totally, that's why I'm picking it. Oh, I like it. It's tart, all that good stuff. What's the tartness? Just the lemon juice, I think. Okay. Yeah. yeah that makes mm-hmm. sense. And this is out of my uh, my book that I, I got for Christmas that I mentioned before, The Drinking with the Saints. So I just opened it up to their February cocktails, and this was one of them that caught my eye. It's delicious. Yeah. 10 out of 10, would recommend. And... All these are great bottles of things to have. So Benedictine control worth worth purchasing. Does this have, is this something that some ancient saint drank at some point in time? You know, it's not. It's just, it's talking about uh, Saint Acurius and a little bit about his life and his work. And then they just tie like a cocktail I think is fitting to the story. Okay. um, In this case, but. All right. It's fantastic. Not bad, though. I really like it. Yo, Tom Bien. What does that mean? Me too. Ah. (laughs) (laughs) In what? what? Spanish. Ah. Oh, wow. I'm not very good at Spanish. It's one of the few things I remember at this point. (laughs) Yeah. What? How do you say I don't... No no hablo espanol? Si. Yeah. (laughs) Sometimes I say no parlo... Espanole, and then I realized that that's 
Italian, so I'm saying I don't speak Spanish in Italian. In Italian. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> That's hilarious. Oh, wait, wait, no, it's not Parlo. It's not Parlo. It's, it's uh... <laughs> <laughs> That's actually quite funny. So it's more fitting. I guess it's true to the. <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, so tonight we are continuing our deep dives into different political ideologies. Right? That's right. Yes. Mm-hmm. And we're gonna dive into liberalism. Yeah, I think so. Cool. And this is something that we've discussed here and there in part, mm-hmm. uh, especially with our little three-part enlightenment right thinkers series which is worth checking out if you haven't so episode 22 we talked about john locke episode 23 rousseau and episode 24 um about pre-enlightenment and then oh i guess episode 21 we did hobbs Mm -hmm. yeah and so worth listening to that if you haven't to maybe get a little more context on some of the names we're going to most likely mention Mm -hmm. and uh kind of some of our thoughts on that and then we did an episode on libertarianism kind of yeah that was kind of like a uh, it, spur of the moment yeah exactly episode but and so you know like i said we've we've, <laughs> we've dabbled yeah in the the liberalism or at least roots of liberalism but now we're, we're hoping to kind of get a little more detailed in that so with the liberalism discussion i think right off the bat we need to I guess clear up a little bit of confusion around the word because there is a lot to it and there is a lot of people who self-identify as some sort of fill-in-the-blank liberal uh, or, you know, something along those lines. And do we want to start the beginning and move forward or start from the forward and move to the beginning that's a good question i was going to start at the beginning yes and then kind of close with the that distinction great so but start I guess, with like some history and some important yeah ideas there um but i guess we can we can just note at the top that um the way liberal is used in american politics and also like uh British and Canadian politics as well um, is different from what liberalism was and is understood as in other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's different than what liberalism was understood as in the U S and great Britain and Canada, you know, a century ago. So it's in those countries and in the U S we can speak about specifically it's, evolved um and kind of turned into something that in many ways is quite different from what classical liberalism is yes exactly and so how far back do we want to go because ideas of liberalism as we are going to discuss really have some pretty ancient roots mm-hmm. you know we've mentioned before as early as some of the philosophical thinkers um aristotle plato there were ideas of of kind of this nature floating around but it didn't really get refined or labeled until much much later yeah thousand years later thousands of years later Mm -hmm. um so realistically i think 
can we agree that we'll go back to probably the 15th century as kind of uh, the Enlightenment era starts? Or not 15th, but like 16th. 16th century. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, with Hobbes, which we have discussed. Yeah. Talking about this. Then Locke and Rousseau talking about these things. Yeah. I, um, I would say Locke is generally understood to be my boy Locke is yeah, generally understood to be the father of liberalism. Of liberalism right. Yeah. And, and it, I think that's a pretty consistent viewpoint. Yeah. Um, and it kind of, to your point, definitely like kind of uh, isolated strands of liberal thinking existed. Um, dating back to the ancient Greeks, like you noted. Mm-hmm. Um, but they definitely, it kind of coalesced around like an ideology and sort of take, took shape um, during and after the English civil war, which is when there really was this like revolt against the monarchy, against the idea of the divine right of the ruling class mm-hmm. um, and a push for uh, liberal democratic values. Yes. So yeah, as we've noted in, the episodes that that you mentioned and specifically the Locke episode he really develops the radical notion that government uh, acquires consent from the governed not from on high not through some divine right but government is only legitimate if the people being governed consent to being governed yep and again that was a completely radical thought at the time um and he he really kind of like, I shouldn't say was the first to establish, but was the first to really articulate like the value of private property and property rights and like rights of autonomy over your body, your property, your labor. Um, those were all totally revolutionary things, right? Coming from like a feudalistic agrarian society ruled by monarchies. That was just the idea of empowering an individual with rights over their body and their labor and their property was totally unheard of. Um, And that's, those are kind of like the fundamental principles of, of liberalism. Locke was influenced by John Milton who lived from 1608 to 1674. Um, And he was another kind of radical thinker who advocated for freedom in kind of all possible forms. Um, he argued for the separation of church and state and said that that was the only effective way of, of um, like reaching a state of toleration amongst different religious sects. And again, like put this into the context of the time, religious wars were kind of ever present, right? And so some of these thinkers were trying to find a way to like, end that cycle right because you have i mean the reformation happening right yeah they're living it we've mentioned before the 30-year war in uh england Mm -hmm. between like hobbs and Locke's life um right and it really was out of the enlightenment that these thinkers thought these thinkers thought these thinkers realized that or believe that problems could be solved rationally. And so they sat down and they really started looking at what history had produced in the past um, and 
kind of work backwards from there and figure out, okay, how do we address the issues that have been in history for the last 2,000 years with our, our new found rationale? And that's where these thinkers really started to pop up and address things like tribalism and try to understand like, oh, maybe instead of fighting physical wars, we can fight, you know, with debate, rational, right? Fight ideas. And this is all kind of coming during that time period. Um, and then Locke kind of articulated it into a philosophy that then was, you know, turned into you know, like the republics was put into practice. Yeah, yeah, as, totally. As republics that we know today, right? Um, which is very interesting. And I guess, yeah, that's. I mean, that's where the the liberalism starts. Is that it's it's just a prescription for a, a problem that that was viewed during that time. Yeah, it was a radical alternative mm-hmm. to the status quo, and like the for the first time, really, in like human history, that we started to articulate a way to empower individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the English civil war is an important like turning point in this history. That war broke out because of disputes between English parliament and, and King Charles. This took place in like the 1640s. Eventually King Charles was executed and a Republic was established. Yes. There was a group called the levelers um, that were this like radical political I was like, movement. That sounds radical, <laughs> right? Yeah, and they basically they they well they published a manifesto called the Agreement of the People, um, and that manifesto ag- advocated for popular sovereignty. So basically, government only being government legitimacy being contingent upon the consent of the governed, and extended voting suffrage, mm-hmm. um, not to everyone, unfortunately, but to beyond like the elite. Right. Religious tolerance and equality before the law. And so these guys were kind of these like middle class radicals that demanded freedom of trade, um, an end to state monopolies, separation of church and state, popular representation um, and strict limits on parliamentary authority. Right. And here's more context, especially with separation of church and state because of the Reformation and conflict before and during that time. That was a huge issue, an issue that I don't think people can really fathom today, and that is there really was this kind of animosity towards anyone that was dissenting from this, you know, the state religion to the point of persecution and death or war. So it wasn't, oh, you guys have a different opinion than us. There can be a schism and you can have your own denomination like we see today, right? Any conflict that rises up in a church is just like, oh, schism. We'll <laughs> just start our new branch. Right. Uh, it was a lot more extreme then. And that's why you see like England was Protestant and like France was Catholic and Spain was also Catholic, question mark. Yeah, they definitely yeah, weren't Protestant. They were Catholic. Right, exactly. Then they so, were like ruled you know, by Muslims for a long time. But. Well, that's true. That was older history, but... Right, 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 um, right. But then you have countries that are pitted against each other just on the basis of, of that, right? And again, they were looking for solutions to, to problems that they saw. And I think there are some interesting critiques as far as that's concerned, which I hope that we have time to dive into a little bit, but 
I mean, more context into what this is coming from and, and what their solutions were. Mm-hmm. It really was like, oh, wow, everyone seems to be fighting about everything, which kind of was true, right? Lots of wars. Right. We've, we've had a lot of wars in history, guys. We sure have. And a lot of them have been goofy. War is the <laughs> rule. Peace is yeah. the exception, yeah. unfortunately. So av- after the English Civil War, kind of this like political momentum of groups like the Levelers built and kind of culminated in the Glorious Revolution of 1688. Why are you laughing? Just Glorious Revolution. <laughs> this reminds name. me of Soviets. No, I mean, this was like when sort of English law was established mm-hmm. um uh and really this was when arguably like the first liberal modern state was established so the glorious revolution enshrined uh certain liberal values like uh the habeas corpus act of 1679 um which strengthened which basically it forbid detention lacking sufficient cause or evidence right innocent until proven guilty mm-hmm. so that's kind of the f- the founding of due process essentially yeah or yeah i think that's fair to yeah. say and then the establishment of the english bill of rights which laid down basic like human rights for all englishmen um, right, right. and protected them in many ways from like being exploited by the state so that that's huge, right? Um, and then liberalism also has its roots um, in the Enlightenment, which you've kind of touched upon. Sort of this revolutionary thinking, um, kind of a to- it was a totally different approach of viewing the world and how to solve conflict and an individual's place in society. And 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 sort of the Enlightenment put forth ideas that we've, you know, kind of already touched upon, like separation of church and state and toleration and 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 individual liberty and constitutional government. And then obviously the American Revolution was kind of was heavily influenced by Locke and by this like English uh civil law and with the American Constitution, the founding of the Republic, that like further kind of extended this liberal experiment across the pond and obviously was, I mean, even, you know, we didn't have a monarchy at all, right? I mm-hmm. mean, there still is, even if they're more for just show, there still is a king and queen in England. We didn't have that. So it was kind of, we took it one step further, I would say. And again, that was totally revolutionary and changed the course of human history. I think it's also fair to say that like industrialization in the first industrial revolution in like the late uh, 18th century was another thing that people were reacting to that type of progress and economic growth and prosperity i think further empowered individuals and all of a sudden there were just like more opportunities available to people like more ways to make money more money to be made that gives you greater autonomy so i think like those kind of like practical physical advancements with this married with this like philosophical revolutionary thought it it helped accelerate it i would say definitely and then you know just all during this time there's all these historical events that kind of all help pave the way for kind of the success that a lot of these ideas had that probably wasn't possible before and that's just like technological advancements things like <laughs> the printing press was huge i mean right that, i mean just a means of distributing literacy right education and these thoughts right right i mean all these things kind of happened right time right place yeah that created this 
the perfect conditions. Super spreader event of yeah. knowledge, right? <laughs> right, um, exactly. So it's very interesting. And that's why, like, you know, the West, as it's often described, is the what I'm trying to say here is the That's uh, where liberalism was yeah, born. That's where liberalism was born. And yeah. and the same reason why liberalism had was spread to other countries because it also was happening be it towards the end still during an imperialist era and so you have things like the introduction of it to japan china colonies states that europeans had as this was i mean you know i don't think we can say china's ever been or is a liberal state uh no but i mean it, with western influence it's yeah, I mean, the American Constitution yeah. and English civil law has been duplicated around the mm -hmm. world as people become free and democracies are created. Right. 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 There's something of value there. When you want to have a state that's like empowers individuals and gives people autonomy over their lives and creates the conditions for a functioning free market economy, you mimic what was done in England and the U.S., Right. Exactly. Not to suggest that it was perfect, because obviously it was not. <laughs> right. Yeah. But like those fundamental ideas from John Locke and Adam Smith and John Stuart Mill, et cetera, et cetera, like those worked. <laughs> yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. And so what would you say, or maybe we can work together on this, laying out some of the, the now we've already hinted at some of them, but the key tenets of liberalism. Mm -hmm. In its founding, how it, you know, has evolved, but just the main ideas, because liberalism, as I think we'll see soon, a lot of political parties have their roots in liberalism. I right. mean, both conservatives and liberals in the American political sense are, in the traditional sense, liberals. Both parties are. Right. I mean, frankly. They they vary on certain things, but like their right. roots are in liberalism, right? Right. Libertarianism, liberalism. I mean, yeah. All of these groups kind of have the same roots, and how it's presented changes, obviously. Well, yeah, how it evolves. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and even things like during the French Revolution, like the violent revolutionary, and the you know more extremes that we saw there. I mean, they had their roots in liberalism as well. Right, they did, and so. Their, uh, it gets messy real fast. <laughs> their, their approach uh, wasn't very liberal. <laughs> liberal, and it also didn't. It, it it wasn't. Gosh, what was the word I'm trying to say? It didn't hold up because pretty quickly Napoleon. Well, yeah, took over and was a dictator. So that kind of backfired. But um, right. Anyways, but yes, they're definitely the roots of liberalism are found all over the world. So I would say. I'm going to, I'll just list some of the things that I sure, think are sure. fundamental principles of it. Sort of what's considered like classical economics or maybe what we would describe today as like free market economics, uh, free trade, a laissez-faire government with minimal intervention and low taxes, a balanced budget if the government is going to exist, um, a commitment to individualism, liberty and equal rights, private property, the rule of law to ensure those rights. Like mm -hmm. private property and freedom of speech, et cetera. Constitutional guarantees of freedom of religion, freedom of press, freedom of speech, freedom of association, et cetera. And international peace based on free trade. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yep. 
the idea being that trade is the most effective means to peace. Yes, right. Yep. And then the only other thing I would add to that, and this was something that I suppose was developed as these republic Democrat societies were being formed the idea and this ties into limited government and things like that uh, ensuring checks and balances to avoid absolute power because liberalism in its founding was anti-authoritarian um, right. at least in theory and I have some critiques right. on that just in general um, but I think that's an important thing to note as well they really they had I mean the world was full of author- authoritarians yeah and I mean that they acknowledged been- that and they were like how can we prevent this yeah right that's why they were against monarchs and things like that but then you get into the weeds further where hobbes was for an absolute monarchy i don't think hobbes was a you would call hobbes a liberal no but like you know he had some roots i mean he was before Locke. yeah but he had some of the early yeah views of it and whatnot yeah i don't like hobbes (laughs) yeah yeah it's fair enough fair enough um And, you know, also on top of that, I think, I don't, actually, I don't know if we ever discussed this in our, in our philosophy series, but was, I mean, Locke believe man was inherently good? Ooh. Is that, because I feel you're, like that's kind of has to be a part of, of, of the key things too, right? That, that worldview. Let's um, see. I'm going to go back to my because I'm actually now I'm on the spot and I'm forgetting. Yeah. Let same. me look. Um, he, I mean, no, he believed in like, you know, we were talking about the blank slate idea and, and how people are formed and right um, through experience. Did he ever make a statement about whether they were inherently good or not? Uh, He's, he came up with the whole tablia rasso blank slate idea. Yeah, exactly. And they were, you know, people are influenced by their environment and. Um, this is something that we might have to correct later. I actually don't know now what his view on that. If he was deeply influenced by Milton, Milton was a Presbyterian, I believe. So probably Calvinist. And there are definitely some strong ties to inherency, uh, the evil, uh, man being inherently evil. He, he, so one thing he argued was that like virtues were not innate. Hmm. And again, sort of that blank slate idea that like, what does he say? That like reason. So one one argument I'm reading from my notes here. One argument that he made was that ideas were, that if ideas were innate, we could observe some similarity across cultures and we don't. He specifically noted different cultures, interpretation of God, blah, blah, blah. blah. The process of reason is innate, but ideas themselves are not innate. Hmm. So I don't think he attributed... Like, I don't think he made an argument whether or not man was inherently good or, or evil. evil. But yeah, I guess and I remember in my reading of him thinking, I mean, and they all were Hobbes and Rousseau all were kind of rejecting. I mean, they might have they weren't atheists necessarily, but they were all kind of rejecting like the status quo of religion at the time. Sure. So, I don't, yeah, I don't know how much that influenced his thinking. Well, okay. I shouldn't say that. It definitely influences thinking. Wow, well, I'm sure. I don't right. think he made a, a statement about whether man's good or nope. inherently good. Well, that's or evil. good to know. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I think those are pretty good key uh, key tenets that we've laid out there. I think another thing just to note: the Scottish theory of spontaneous order was like totally influenced liberalism and became kind of like a key tenet of liberalism and free market economics. Um. 
Okay, I know I know Scottish Enlightenment thinkers were crazy bunch. What is spontaneous? Okay, well, uh, so in the Scottish like uh, theory of mm-hmm. spontaneous order, the idea was that that basically self-generating and self-regulating civil society it 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 did not require state action. So, and then in kind of the economic sense, spontaneous order is is sort of the phenomenon of market interactions channeling people's self-interest into productive ends. So, through voluntary trade, supply and demand can be met. Through price signals, the level of supply and demand are determined, and through countless individual actions, an economy emerges. And it depends solely on individual choice and will, not on a bureaucratic centralized planning by an authority. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So the, so those Scottish philosophers just kind of observed how society can function without an authority guiding it. And that obviously was kind of critical in this idea of a self-governing liberal society. Very cool. And, you know, I can only imagine that a lot of these thinkers as well living in England at that time were able to look back at not so past history of kind of the futile system that was in place. And even within that, acknowledge the histories of the kingdoms that were successful and the histories of the kingdoms that were not, um, and probably draw from that and say, hey, look, the kings that just filled their basic duties of protecting their people and just let their people be thrived. And then, you know, the tyrants were overthrown, <laughs> you know, even yeah. within that, you know, I'm yeah, sure probably. there's a lot of context there as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, probably. So I think maybe noting just a couple other uh, liberal thinkers and philosophers that were really important to establishing this philosophy. John Stuart Mill mm-hmm. contributed enormously to it, and he defended things like free speech, which he sort of viewed as as essential for there to be like any well individual autonomy and also like just progress in society and he actually was like an early proponent of feminism Mm -hmm. and he also warned of the tyranny of the majority which is where i think a lot of the thinking behind having a, a republic that can have a check and ensure that like the minority of society is not sort of shouted down by the majority. Um, I think a lot of that came from John Stuart Mill's thinking. Another notable person to mention, well, Adam Smith, which we already noted, but he was kind of the first to sort of observe and write about uh, what we describe as like a free market system. And he also talked about sort of, and obviously was influenced by Locke, but kind of like man's natural right to their body and their labor and their property. So long as their actions don't infringe upon the freedom and autonomy of other people which is like that's kind of libertarianism in a nutshell sure yeah and then Ludwig von Mises is another one I just want to highlight because he's my fave economist but um he in the 20th century was a huge proponent of liberalism and in many ways can kind of be attributed with like saving liberalism because even in like throughout the first half of the 20th century and even like after world war two, it was a while before we realized like that communism didn't work. Right. And there were the intelligentsia and elites of the U S and other parts of Europe were like, 
fanboying over communism. Right. Right. There was all, you know, the brightest were thinking like that the Soviet Union represented this like new way and their economy was growing at the same rate or faster. And so like, look, you can have the same kind of wealth creation, but like it can be more egalitarian and et cetera, et cetera. And, and Mises fled Austria and had seen some of the horrors firsthand of kind of like full state control. Um, And then eventually we'd learn more about the Soviet Union, but throughout that time he wrote about it and he's the one I've mentioned this before, but he put forth sort of this idea of the knowledge problem and kind of completely dismantled the idea that you can efficiently manage an economy through central planning. And the knowledge problem that he described was that uh, all knowledge is dispersed throughout society. So no one individual or group of individuals in a central authority can like make the right decisions for everybody. They don't know how much bread needs to be baked or at what price you should sell your eggs. Right. Like those things are determined through spontaneous order through the market, just channeling self-interest into productive ends. So, yeah. So he was just like a really important champion and like a prolific writer. And I mean, there's loads of like neat old interviews of him in the 70s that are like tinted yellow. And he's mm, great. Gotcha. Um, anyways, <laughs> but he was just great. So anyway, he was just another one that I think is worth mentioning. And then he was a huge influence on Murray Rothbard, who's another kind of like hero of classical liberalism, libertarianism. And Murray Rothbard put forth... He kind of took the teachings of Austrian economics, which is what Mises was a proponent of, which is basically like what how you would understand like free market economics. So Murray Rothbard took Austrian economics and then married that with uh, the doctrine of natural rights. And he took those two th- like philosophies or or just sort of ideas and came up with something called anarcho-capitalism. Yes. Which, okay, so anarcho-capitalists believe, (laughs) (laughs) they believe that basically there's no need for a state at all, Mm -hmm. no government, um, and that all services, even like law, like our judicial system, our police, our military, all of that can be provided by the private sector. And... Oh, no. Am I an anarcho-capitalist? You might, you might be. Actually, you might be. Yeah. Um, and I'll just say I mean, what they're arguing like, for is essentially decentralizing power, which like I'm all for. Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, completely all for that. I mean, that's like big picture what he's talking about. But the idea that we could ever successfully transition to this state is total like magical thinking, in my opinion. Well, and the other thing is like that kind of stuff, it doesn't scale. And that's the problem. That's true. Yeah, because eventually you do, you get to a point of the nation, right? You get to a point of like where economies of scale come in and like the bigger you would have. I mean, you probably would end up with like a military when you wouldn't have dozens of different militaries like competing to deliver the best military at the lowest price. You would have like there would be one that has majority market share because mm-hmm. they have economies of scale and can do it more like efficiently. Right. So anyways, um, so I, I just think that like trying to do that, it would take too long and have too many short term negative externalities for society for it to, to ever be like politically feasible to even like try to go through that experiment. <laughs> um, right. And it's just like totally, I think it's a fun thought experiment, but I personally think it's like totally impractical. So 
there are utopians on all sides. <laughs> yes. I have to say. Yes, exactly. Like what works and what doesn't work. We're going to take a quick break, then we'll be back to our conversation. If you like what you're hearing, help spread the word by leaving a five-star rating and one or two sentence review on your favorite streaming platform. Thank you to Reagan James for the use of our theme music, The Habit, off her album, Message. Find her work on Spotify and Apple Music. Thanks to the Highline Media Network for having us as a founding podcast. Here's a quick preview of a recent episode from our sister show, Author's Intent. There's just, there's just so much. There's just so much that's different. It's the same story in essence. It's like they boiled it down and they made a LaCroix, a Beauty and the Beast LaCroix. Like they, the story is still somewhat present in the movies, but you're not going to get the full flavor of it unless you read it. And now back to our conversation. I want to spend the rest of our evening, if we may, just kind of talking about, I think, maybe legitimate criticisms. Sure, totally. Um, we haven't done that a bunch with this series, but I think because... <laughs> what are you talking about? Well... <laughs> I feel like all I've done is criticize yeah, all yeah, the other things Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right? But it's easy for us to criticize it, right? Yeah, Because yeah, I'm, like, yeah. I'm not tied to it anyway, but like we, totally. we both are in somewhere on the liberal spectrum. Yes. Um, I don't want to present this as just like all the other things suck and this right. one's awesome. And and I think there are some legitimate concerns and part of it yeah. is kind of approaching it from a uh, ideological or utopian standpoint being like, ooh, you know, this is what they're saying, but it's not really delivering. Right. Um, and that's where most of the criticisms come from. Yeah. Um, so I'm just going to kind of work through what I've been thinking about and the shortcomings of liberalism in general, as we see it in the United States and elsewhere. And like I said, liberalism is just a, a rough, we're, we're talking big picture in this episode. Yeah, there's like um, a lot we could yeah, dive into. We could dive into the history of like the Republican Party or the Democratic Party or the Green Party or all these things that spout from it, but we're not going to do that. So like, you know, part of liberalism is the idea that through trade and interaction, you can you can have peace. I think also it's a tenet that like, they're pro-immigration. Um, yeah. They see value and things like that. You know, where does it? Where does the barrier end? Where like some liberal thinkers are like open borders, everything's good, and no, we actually need strict immigration and border control. And having the position of immigration or or stricter immigration and especially strict border patrol is that kind of disingenuous or hypocritical to the original idea of liberalism. I think some would argue it is. Yeah. yeah. And right. then some would say like, well, you need to have like, if we're in a sovereign state, you need mm -hmm. to be able to like, you know, I don't know, have like manage. Right. And that's difficult too, because they, goes. the liberal ideology values individual sovereignty, but is weary of national sovereignty. Well, right. Because they totally distrust the state. Exactly. Yeah. And so you get into, honestly, some kind of, mm -hmm. I don't know muddy waters in that like i can see that as being a legitimate concern or being able to point at it and say well you're kind of a hypocrite right like you're for all of these things that give power to a sovereign state and you have to give power to a sovereign state to maintain control and it's it's really counter 
productive to to the philosophy or counterintuitive. Yeah. 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 I think that there are uh, the anarcho-capitalist types <laughs> who are like, we don't need a state at all. Right. Um, And then there are what I would say are probably the vast majority mm-hmm. of people who identify as classical liberals or libertarians who recognize that there is a role for the state. They want that role to be limited. They want that role to simply play, do the job of ensuring the basic rights that classical liberals believe people should have. Like mm-hmm. we said, freedom of speech, habeas corpus, yada, yada. So I guess it's a matter of scale. Mm-hmm. It seems to always be the darn problem. Right. Right. Um, I just want to note that to your, you had mentioned this before, but I think it's worth like reiterating. In American politics, both, I mean, the parties throughout history, but let's just talk about the two main ones of the last century and a half. The Democrats and Republicans uh, both had a liberal and a conservative wing within mm-hmm. each, and the conservatives tended to be proponents of bigger government and proponents of more state intervention, not necessarily in terms of like a welfare state, right? But in terms of uh, kind of like moral authority and over time, and this could would be a really fascinating thing that we should do like a separate deep dive on because there's too much there to try to do it now. But um, over time, the left... The Democrats eventually, so in my trying to wrap my head around this, I think the Vietnam War was really like, and the revolts and protests around that is really what kind of cemented this. But it seems like the Vietnam War was such a disrupting thing that people within the respective parties kind of like went to the far ends. And the Republicans became conservative Mm -hmm. and they were like for the war. And then the Democrats became liberal and embraced like the radical hippie movement that kind of eventually defined the party. Mm -hmm. Like the actual OG anti-war, which, oh, how things have changed. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And it kind of culminated in that. uh, What was that uh, Democrat convention where they have that? people protested outside and lit shit on fire and it was like there were riots and stuff and forgetting where it was but anyways that was kind of when like the democrats became associated with liberals Mm -hmm. and it was kind of a at that point like i would say progressivism over the 20th century kind of changed what liberal meant and all of a sudden not all of a sudden over the course of a century like because of progressive influences, liberal in America began to mean like more state intervention for egalitarian ends. So they were still for like the equality of the individual, but we're going, but we're going to use the state to achieve that. Mm-hmm. So that it's what made this huge departure from what classical liberalism is. And then, yeah, I think again, like I think the revolt around the Vietnam War kind of like dug the parties in different directions. Or just like move them towards those two different conservative liberal camps. And liberal at that point in time had come to mean more like progressive than anything else. Totally. Anyways. Cool. Here's my next critique. Yes. This is good because I've been thinking about it and now you're just answering my questions. So 
I'm putting you on the spot. Okay. But it's fine. I like it. <laughs> um, you know, another key ten tenet of, of liberalism that we didn't really touch base on in a lot of detail yet, but, you know, the idea that they were seeing a world where violence was kind of the solution to problems and they, and like I had mentioned, using debate and rationality as a means of a productive end, you you have the idea that we quote a lot or the saying that we quote all the time is that you know in the marketplace of ideas um, debate it in the marketplace of ideas you know that through civil discourse you can come to understandment and peaceful disagreement i think that's part of it right Mm -hmm. yeah sure totally and it's nice on paper and i get it but there are a lot of people that are a threat to liberalism and that is individual sovereignty peaceful discourse yeah and that pushes liberals into a position where you now have an enemy which is kind of again hypocritical to the point of liberalism like it's trying to to bound these tribalist uh views of of everyone opposed to you as an enemy but if the thing that you are fundamentally for is threatened by an outside group. They are now the enemy. And that pushes a liberal society into a position where you have to destroy the enemy or your liberalism goes away. And so how do you wrestle with that from a liberal standpoint? Right. Yeah. I mean, look, when I, (laughs) when, when I've, the one area where I sort of stray from libertarian classical liberal thinking is this idea that like foreign conflicts can be avoided through free trade mm-hmm. i think that's can is largely probably true right and it's, it's good worth, you want to have pursuing. you want to have good relationships with your neighbors right and, and you should and mutually beneficial trade voluntary trade is a great way to create a partner instead of yeah. an enemy and right positive incentives for both both parties right yeah. but not everybody in the world respects and values the same things mm-hmm. right and there are going to be just like inevitable adversaries and and so to your point what do you do when you're faced with those adversaries and i think that's where you know i personally do believe that like we need some form of a military mm-hmm. we do need some form of police would i like them to be less bloated and wasteful and abusive yeah, completely. And yeah. I think most libertarians would agree with that. But even the anarcho-capitalists, they don't say that we don't need some sort of enforcing mechanism or like way to protect rights and protect individual sovereignty from right. enemies. They're just saying that it's not, shouldn't be a uh, centralized government. Yeah, they're just saying they don't want to be taxed. They want to voluntarily pay a private, you know, mm-hmm. entity for it. And they think that'd be more efficient, right? So, I'd, so, so, yeah, so maybe it isn't even contradictory. Maybe, you know, everybody acknowledges that there's some need for uh a way to defend yourself sure, and your rights. yeah 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 and uh, this is just, these are just critiques that i've heard that i yeah, think totally. are fair right to talk about for sure. um you know kind of tying into that another part of of liberalism that also ties into the libertarian standpoint is the non-aggression principle and just kind of let people be like if they're not harming you let people be but yeah and maybe it's just the the nature of being excited about it for being so much about let people be 
liberalism seems particularly uh, evangelistic. And it's kind of the goal of liberals to spread the good news of liberalism to the world, mm-hmm. which isn't really what they stand for. If that makes sense. Like, they don't, like we don't believe in imposing anything on anybody, but at the same time, we right. want everybody to be a libertarian yes. with us. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's a problem. <laughs> That's true. I mean, well, yeah, because if they're not, and mm-hmm. you can't have the utopian peaceful society, then you have to have some sort of military force to protect the peaceful society from the aggressive ones. And mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, that's a really good observation. I've never like even thought about that. But mm-hmm. yeah, there is a bit of contradiction there. I mean, reality's ugly, right? Yeah, so mean, yeah. like, it's just, it's yeah, a lot of these things, as I said before, some of it's like a fun thought experiment, but couldn't right, actually right, come to be exactly and and that's where you do i'm saying that about anarcho-capitalism yeah, yeah, yeah. i don't want that to come back <laughs> and haunt me i'm not saying that about classical liberalism in general <laughs> and, and there is kind of this thing where you know you you do see the the liberal countries going to foreign countries and trying to implement not just democracy but the idea of liberalism to sometimes a group of people that don't want it well okay two thoughts on that one I sadly don't think, okay, all right, broad strokes, yes, there are liberal countries in the world in the classical liberal sense. Right. In practice, there aren't any, really. Well, and I was gonna, and this is, we'll get into this, America's not a liberal country at all. No, we're not. We we're, once were, we're not anymore, yeah, I don't exactly. think. Um, I don't think there are any, actually. Um, well, like, I shouldn't uh, say that. There's some, actually, no, there are I, I would agree with that really statement, actually. That there are any. Yeah. Like there's places like Singapore that have like in terms of their market economy, it's like super laissez faire. But then there's like ridiculous state control and like it's kind of, a you know, anyways, yeah, a lot of like police power. So that's not liberal. But um, what was my second thought on that? What were you just remind me? Sorry, jog my uh, memory real quick. I mean, critiques of just imperialism in general and oh, and, right. And spreading yes. it. And yes. like these people, it's, you know, it's like the drowning country that's. You know, the, like the meme, the hands up in the air, and it's like liberalism, high five. And <laughs> yeah, you're like, totally. This is what you need right now. Right. Well, so that's, you know, all of our intervention in the world's intervention mm-hmm. in the Middle East is a perfect example of that, of like cultures clashing. Mm-hmm. And like, look at everything that we described earlier that needed to take place and culminate in order for classical liberalism to emerge and actually be put into practice in some form. Yes. A lot, right? There's a lot of just like basic understandings of man and his role in the world and the value of private property, et cetera, et cetera. All of those like understandings need to be there in order for classical liberalism to work. Yes. And if you try to just impose classical liberalism on a society that doesn't have any of that foundational understanding or exactly. values, it won't work. Right. 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 Which you I know, think is a, is a reality that isn't acknowledged. Right. And my dad always says this, and this might be another offensive <laughs> thing, but it's kind of a cold, hard reality, but I think we're kind of getting at it. And that is that uh, there are some cultures inevitably end up with like authoritarian regimes Mm -hmm. i can't i'm gonna forget what country in latin america it is and i'll try to remember oh god 
specifically in South America. I'm totally forgetting. But there was like a Spanish conquistador, which that isn't classical liberalism. I'm not saying yeah, I'm yeah. not suggesting that at all. But after he just like failed a ton and he wrote this like memoir and was basically like, there's no ruling these people. And that's just maybe that's a bad example because classical liberalism isn't about ruling people. But right. But there are just different cultures right. that are maybe not conducive to different political philosophies and there are wild and free people like you said that like oh they would be classical yeah 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 wild (laughs) and free people yeah okay so that's 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 good and um but if but if a free market economy is required for classical liberalism to mm -hmm. take place there are some cultures that like don't jive with that right sure so and that's and i think that's something that needs to be acknowledged and i think it's something that just needs to be accepted right like it's easy to say like, oh, we can see the fruits of this, but like it's it's not a, a fits all. Well, and it is to your point, it is pretty uh ironic to impose a system that values autonomy and like consent. Mm-hmm. But you're going to impose those values right. on a culture. I mean, that's ridiculous. Right. And that's why it doesn't has never worked when we try to do that. Right. Totally. Which is which is very interesting. That's really just a, a critique of state power. That's yeah. not really a <laughs> yeah, critique fair. of classical liberalism. Fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> and you know, this kind of does go into why, you know, maybe the maybe the utopian nature of it or why we really don't have any liberal states. I mean, even in America, like, you know, in the in the case of like, you know, not wanting excessive taxes, like America is excessively taxed. Like Yes. And when you actually look at what is taxed all like through and through everything that's taxed one way or another, like we're no different than like Germany. Like when you look at the market and like the depths of everything that is taxed, like we are very high on the tax list. You know, we have, we don't have a balanced budget, right? We have high taxes, Mm -hmm. you know, we have a massive welfare state. That's, that's it. Massive welfare state. A fairly regulated, pretty highly regulated economy. Mm hmm. Yeah, we're not you know? classical liberals and, anymore. And, and this is another critique of it that, that I think is a fair one. Like, the, the liberal ideals are that you have some sort of leadership that has checks and balances because there is an inherent fear of absolute power. That's why they weren't into things like the absolute monarch. That's why they didn't like dictatorships, authoritarianism. Yeah. But also, it's kind of like they want, you know, they want to have their cake and eat it as well, where... They have no problem with when situations are dire enough to give up or give in and allow absolute power. And so any state like the United States that says they have checks and balances, or Canada, for example, that says they might have checks and balances or value liberal ideology, but allow government to have emergency power <laughs> yeah, has missed the point. Right, totally. Well, and the, here's the thing. These systems of government have evolved over time. The U.S. government True. has evolved and become a massive intrusive behemoth over time. It didn't start out that way. Even the founders had squabbles between themselves about how much power to centralize and how much to give to the states, right? Yeah. Um, some people say that, like, what was the quote-unquote Wild West is an example of, like, classical liberalism actually happening at one point in time. Um which, by the way, the Wild West was not as wild as people think. And right. Perk 
my organization, PJ Hill, who's great, has some really good writings on that. He wrote a book called The Not So Wild West. That's oh, I would love that. It's neat. Yeah. Um, basically, like the stories of violence and gangs and all that stuff was like kind of grossly exaggerated, and for large part, it was like a pretty w- limited, like kind of unregulated mm-hmm. place for a while. Um, and an economy was born, and people secured their rights, and you know, it was yeah not a utopia because that's not an option, but it was probably one of the closest things points in U S history that we came to having a real classical liberal, uh, society, which is ironic. Cause now it's like California, for example, is like probably the least yeah. <laughs> classically liberal places in the country. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's evolved over time. And as we talked about in our progressivism episode, that really changed the course of the country. It changed our understanding of what liberalism means. Mm-hmm. It changed our understanding of the role of government. And I mean, through like FDR's New Deal and World War Two. I mean, we all of a sudden all became a hell of a lot more used to like more taxes, more spending, more intrusion into people's lives and into the economy. Um, so it's evolved and changed quite a bit over yeah. time. That's good. And I know... Well, it's bad, yeah. but... <laughs> <laughs> it's good to know these things, right? Uh, you know, the last thing that I that I, I want to ask about, and this is another critique, which I think is actually a particularly good one, probably the best one, because I know we need to wrap up, but, you know... Going along with the idea of the marketplace of ideas, uh, there tends to be an advantage towards the most eloquent and intelligent people in the marketplace of ideas, and it doesn't necessarily mean that their ideas are better. And so how do you, as a liberal, who, who values a diversity of viewpoints and, and can understand that the right viewpoint can come from unexpected places, mm-hmm. how do you deal with that imbalance. And I think that's a fair imbalance. So the example that was given that I think is a great example is say you have a group of refugees that are in, say, America, and they have some legitimate concerns and you have a counter argument. But now you have a group of people that have legitimate concerns and good ideas. They are at a disadvantage of language, cultural understanding in the marketplace of ideas. Mm -hmm. And chances are they're going to lose out whether or not that is actually true or fair. And is that just an unfortunate symptom? I mean, my first thought is like life isn't fair and you can't well, like, how do you, yeah. like, how do you, how do you manage that? Mm-hmm. What do you have? Like, like what's the government program to force well, that? Well, see, and then there's, I, that's I, the problem, right? Right. Like, like, I don't think that kind of intervention tends to have all sorts of unforeseen consequences and it complicates things and it slows progress and it makes everything less efficient. Um, I would say that the answer to that is just allowing for like more opportunity for people to share their thoughts. So I think right. if you have a society where like only Harvard educated people can get on CNN and have a television show and that's the only form of media that gets to share ideas, mm-hmm. then that puts everybody else at a disadvantage. Thankfully, as humans have innovated without the help of government, but just out of their own creativity and and genius, 
we've created, for example, other forms of communication like a podcast Mm -hmm. and seemingly anybody or Twitter, right? Seemingly anybody with an internet connection, which you can go get, you know, I mean, you can get that's the cost of that over time has come down, right? These new platforms empower more and more people to share their thoughts and ideas. So I don't think it's a matter of, I think we fall into this trap as human beings of wanting to come up with a perfect solution that is static and keeps society at a static, perfect state. And that is impossible Mm -hmm. and that will never be achieved. So there are going to be inequities that is inevitable. People are born into different circumstances. People have different skill sets. I think trying to round those out through force and coercion, um, we have seen that fail repeatedly. Um, So I think here's a key distinction. What I have observed and others have observed um, is that sort of people who are more prone to look for a centralized solution, like a centralized authority to offer a solution, tend to have short term, a short term perspective. Classical liberals who want to like decentralize power and leave things up to individual choice tend to have a long term perspective. So your example of the new immigrant who doesn't speak English well and has some great idea but can't share it because they don't Mm -hmm. have like access to do that. That can be resolved over time. Exactly. Through their own like will if that's what they want to do right they are free to learn the language they need to learn to get a job and earn money to get an internet connection to buy a phone to start tweeting to build an audience etc etc right but that isn't an instantaneous solution and it requires a lot of like self-motivation and resolve um and again so but then the, the folks who want like an immediate solution um tend to have that short-term perspective. And again, I think that we have seen how that yes. kind of state well, intervention and, and, has a well, lot of externalities. Well, and immediate solutions generally have horrific consequences. Long-term so, consequences, yeah, too. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's like when Keynes said, like, well, in the long run, we're all dead. <laughs> so who cares if what we're doing right now fucks the economy for yeah. the next couple yeah. generations, right? No, thank right? you. Yeah. What so, a selfish... Right. Insufferable of you to have. I mean, I think that's so. And I think I'm assuming that at some point at the end of this series, we're going to maybe reflect on mm-hmm. sort of all of the nuance and the differences and the similarities and the things we've observed throughout all of this. And that's one of the trends I'm seeing is that there is this difference between perspective. And I tend to think having a long term perspective and recognizing that uh, solutions don't come easily. Um, but with patience, they can be realized. Yes. And I a hundred percent agree with you on that, on that viewpoint. So yeah. thank you for listening to, these are concerns that I just, I heard yeah. as I was reading and I thought they were fair. Yeah. Should be addressed. Totally. Um, more so than some of the other topics, things that, you know, like I said, we're, we're in, in line with this. And, um, I guess just as a little, a little nice wrap up, you know, on the topic of some of these concerns I rose. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just the history of liberalism in general. I don't want to go so far as to say that liberalism is dead. It's definitely receding, receding yeah. to say the least. And I think there are elements that could be adapted, but there are elements that are very good. 
And now is an important time to, I think, take in and value some of those those tenets. Um, you know, as far as accepting other people's views and the non-aggression principle, like with all of the nonsense going on with canceling people and dissenting views, like show a little grace. Like, believe me, the worst thing that could possibly happen is like silencing people. And then as far as things like, you know, giving up uh, emergency powers to people. I mean, we see this happening in Canada right now with the trucker convoy. Yeah. You know, a government actively trying to silence a group of people that the elites would view as uneducated or, you know, fringe, all of these with things. With unacceptable views. Right. 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 Horrific things. And then, yeah. you know, just recently, as the trucks got into Ottawa, the Canadian government extended their COVID emergency power. <laughs> And then they put into law, actual law, actual law, uh, the inability to form truck convoys in protest. I'm not even joking. Like their parliament voted on this? Through emergency power. Okay, that's not law. That's an important distinction. Sure. Because all of these governments, people have been saying like, it's the law. You have to wear your mask. Right. It's not a fucking law. But using emergency power to- It's a mandate. To impose something. Okay, sure. Which is a problem, but I'm just yes. saying like, and they're usurping the law when they do that, but right. it's not actually a law and it shouldn't be obeyed. Well, no, it shouldn't be obeyed. hundred percent. not Right. Cause it's not a law passed by people who are representing the will of the governed. Right. But in the case of emergency power and things like that, and we've seen it in the United States, we've seen it in Canada, we've seen it all across Europe. Yeah. One, if there isn't a legitimate legitimate emergency we see that that power is never given up the ratchet effect yep yeah or the more unfortunate thing is it's very easy to create an emergency right and just get the power you want regardless right and i think these are things to be weary of and things that liberalism warn about and things that should be valued yeah Completely agree. So we unfortunately don't have time because of me. Um, so we'll have to do like a follow up yes. to this, I think. Um, but there's this whole concept of left libertarianism or libertarian socialism or uh, what's the other term for it? Syndicalist, <laughs> anarcho syndicalism. Oh, whoa, that sounds fun. Wild shit. Yeah, I'm sure. Things that don't make any sense. Exactly. <laughs> Here, here's the long and the short of it, and we'll dive into it yes. in another episode. But the long and the short of it is, is some libertarians and classical liberals kind of flirt with this left libertarianism because left libertarians, left uh, libertarian socialists, or socialist libertarians, I forget what the order is. Anyways, they oppose the state. They don't want any state authority at all. They think it can all be done privately. However, they don't believe in property rights. What? So it would be this like, <laughs> so it would be, there would be no centralized authority, but there would be, everything would be communally owned. And so that, and we okay. can, we'll dive into this in another episode, but like, that is the Achilles heel of the entire thing because yes. you cannot have, uh, property rights are the key tenant. I would say probably one of the most important tenants of classical liberalism. Right. And if you remove that, 
you don't have classical liberalism anymore and you also can't have a functioning economy. Yeah, I know. A hundred percent. And, you know, again, we've mentioned this every time, like all of these ideologies are very similar in many ways and like things like socialism and communism, like have some roots in liberalism, like as far as like liberalism was an idea that was in rhetoric, I would say in rhetoric, right? Not in practice. No, not in practice, but in rhetoric, like a time point where like, you know, Marx was around during the liberal movement and saw it and saw things like worker problems and then right they were all against monarchies yeah yeah, exactly took that and then shifted it and so like like we have said all of these things are like they're reacting to similar forces they are exactly and they're all intertwined and yeah and you know everyone wants a little bit of it and so it sounds like with you know libertarian socialists they're like i like the vibes of this but like i don't want to be a commie (laughs) (laughs) you know well i think they just recognize that like the state has abused people in mm -hmm. communist regimes so their answer is like well we just won't have a state and it's like you're still missing the economic problem yeah yeah, exactly so anyways it's interesting Uh, this is interesting yeah one last thing i just want to note uh when we were talking about the difference between liberalism in america and everywhere else in the world um i think because progressivism in the early 20th century, I'm going to use this word because this is how I feel about it. Sorry if it's offensive. Kind of infected classical liberalism. Yeah, yeah. Um, and changed what liberalism meant in the U.S. And then conservatives were always like for government intervention for different reasons than what became progressives. And then, as I said, as eventually the Republican and Democrat Party kind of cemented into those two camps, progressive liberals and conservatives. Uh, the actual classical liberals and the libertarians were always just kind of like off separate yeah. from that. Um, and, and that's what you see today, right? Like we don't have a political home because both of the two parties are like for government intervention. Right. Just for different reasons. And it's kind of like we've said before, it's kind of the whole point is like, oh, well, you don't really, you can't really have a political home because we don't organize. Right. <laughs> I know. Uh, we'll have to share our favorite memes memes soon, I think, because yes. I do yes. love the 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 two guys in the field. I'm gonna share. I'll yeah, share those yeah. this week. Yeah, that'd and, be great. Yeah, I'll do that this weekend. Yes. And this will be shared after that, so you'll have already seen it. Yes, by the time exactly. <laughs> Good. It's all our plan is coming. It's coming together. together. <laughs> <laughs> all right, my friend. All right. Cheers. To liberty. To liberty. <laughs>
but you can stay friends. I'm essentially a mediator in the friend space, you know? I'm here so that you can stay friends with those people, despite their horrible opinions about books and movies. So, you're welcome. Highline Media Network. Artist-owned podcasts by normal people in normal places.